0: Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Extra Point Podcast, and I'm excited to share some additional insight into um, the text from last Sunday, but but also some uh, maybe some deeper reflection upon the um, the maybe some of the overall emphasis within the Book of Ephesians, especially uh, chapters two, and as we get into three, and it pertains to what we have often described as an outsider insider perspective. You find that various pronouns are used in Ephesians 1 and, of course, Ephesians 2. Uh, They are the word, the pronoun you and the pronoun we, and often in the usage of those, Paul was indicating with the word, uh, the pronoun you, that he was referring to the Gentiles, within that mixed congregation, of course. And then with the pronoun we, he often referred uh, used that to refer to the Jews within that congregation. And let's not make any mistake. Paul's point in each of these usages, whether it's in chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 3, and whether it's even a positive or negative, uh, Paul's point is always that God is working in both of these to make them one. In fact, in regards to how he talked about the you and the we in regards to sin, he says the the truth is we are all under sin, Jew and Gentile. He used the phrase all mankind. Uh, And when we are born again, when we're made alive by God in Christ, he says both Jew and Gentile are in Christ. And so from both the positive and negative perspective perspective, Though Paul uses the pronouns you and we to refer at times to Jew and Gentile, his point is to always show that there should not be a hostility or a difference or a dividing of them, but a realization that there really is just one and that God's heart is for all the nations. The breaking down of this hostility in Christ at the cross was really the focus of Parker's message on Sunday, and it provided a a beautiful window for us to see God's heart for all peoples. But let me remind you, that's not a new thing uh, just from Paul. In fact, Jesus um, came to portray and illustrate God's heart as well. And let me just remind you of one incident in which we see this uh, being played out in somewhat of a of a very provocative situation. It's recorded for us in one place. It's Mark chapter 11 is when Jesus was cleansing the temple. And often we, we hear about, you know, he's got the whips and he's overturning the tables and he's driving out the money changers. Those who were extracting um, exorbitant fees from people who were just simply trying to purchase things they could sacrifice to God the scriptures tell us that that Christ would not let people pass through the temple. He was shutting down this racket, so to speak, this financial racket, because it was prohibiting people from actually worshiping and uh, worshiping God. But I think what's more specifically intriguing is what Jesus says about this moment. It's in Mark chapter chapter eleven, especially verse oh around verse seventeen. Jesus gives us a commentary on why he did what he did when he was righteously indignant, justifiably angry for the way the temple was being used. Here's the reasoning he gave, and notice the language and how it is so beautifully precise for us. He says, um, uh, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? Now, interesting that he would modify his teaching. He says he was teaching them that God's house would be a house of prayer for all the nations. In other words, it has always been God's heart to have a place for people of every single ethnicity. They're, they're all invited to come and worship. And yes, while the temple was especially uh, the inner court, and there's the Holy of Holies uh, for the Jewish people, and of course the priest would access the Holy of Holies once a year on Yom Kippur— There was a place called the Court of the Gentiles, and that's where anyone else could come. All were invited, because God's heart is for all the nations. And what the money changers had done is they had taken this Court of the Gentiles, this place where anyone from any ethnicity could come and be invited uh, to worship God. They had turned this into a a financial, like I said earlier, a financial racket Uh, a scheme in which they could just make money and profit off people who were actually seeking to worship, whom God loved him, uh, he was inviting into his presence. This really is what angered Jesus, that Jewish elites, perhaps, that religious, um, pharisaical, uh, greedy, money-grabbing pretenders were, were... capitalizing uh, for the wrong reason on really an opportunity that God had established as a means to invite all peoples into his presence. You see, they they were uh, capturing the court of the Gentiles and using it in a wrong way. And this angered Jesus righteously. This justifiably caused him great consternation. And so he does. He overthrows this aspect of Their work. He turns their tables over. He drives them out. Because what's happening is this God's heart for all peoples is being misconstrued, it's being wrongfully portrayed. God's system has always been that uh, all nations would worship Him, would bow down before Him. And this is what will happen at the end of the age. Philippians 2 tells us that. But it's always been God's posture, it's always been God's Uh, heart, his desires, that no one should perish, Peter tells us. And so this was seen even in the way the temple was set up, that there was a court of the Gentiles, and when it was used to further amplify division uh, between Jew and Gentile, when it was used as a way to exploit the Gentiles instead of inviting them in for forgiveness— and to see, you know, to see God and His love and mercy, and to worship Him, Jesus Christ put an end to that. And I think this is a very important point to realize that as His body here in the 21st century, we must make sure that we too are exemplifying and portraying God's heart for the nations. That there is, there is not a man-made division. Um, artificial barriers within the church. And when I say there is not, what I'm speaking of here is a factual reality. I'm not saying that there aren't times that man doesn't uh, create some barriers, some division that's unhealthy, unjust, and unbiblical. But the truth is there's there really aren't there. That's not the way God intended it, and it's not the way God has structured it. His church is one new man in Christ, it is not Jew, it is not Gentile, it's Christian. It's And to use the word in the most literal fashion, it's Christian. He's the head, and we are his body. And that includes people from every single nation, language, tribe, and tongue. And that's what makes it so beautiful. And so as you think about the concept of outsiders and insiders, know that those are words— that describe people prior to coming to Christ and being baptized or placed within his body. Yes, those are terms uh, that we would say are B.C., before Christ. Um, uh, Some are closer to the truth because of their, um, perhaps we'll call it um, natural right, we'll call it. And Paul uses the Jews to describe that. You know, to them was given the commandments, uh, to them was given the law, um, they were exposed to many opportunities earlier. In fact, he even says in Romans 1 that the gospel came first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. So he sees those as insiders. He sees Gentiles as outsiders, those who were not exposed as quickly, those who received the gospel through the uh, God's work among the Jews initially. In another portion, he uses the words near and far to talk about Jew and Gentile. But here's what he's saying that those terms are now extinct, that once you're in Christ, there are no outsiders or insiders. There are no near uh, ones and far ones. There is simply one body, one new man. Uh, It's comprised of slave, free, Jew, Gentile, bond, Scythian, and those words he uses. I mean, those are not divine demarcations that describe the body of Christ. Uh, No, there is one new man, and it's called the church. It's the body of Christ, and Christ is the head. And my exhortation to us today, as we think more deeply upon this text that talks about how God has removed the hostility through Christ and his work on the cross, my exhortation to us is to live this out in practical visible ways in the 21st century. And let us not use divisive words or terms or labels to describe people within the body. Not at all. Let's not use social constructs or man-made terminology, if at all possible, to talk about uh, our placement in the body. Instead, may we rally around Jesus Christ as one body, as one people of God, male, female, whatever the um, you are on the spectrum of color, I mean, we rally around Christ and his work on the cross as our central unifying factor. And in doing so, we then illustrate visibly to the world uh, that we are the body of Christ, singularly, United around his mission to get the gospel to those who've yet to hear. This is what God has always been after. It was illustrated for us in the structure of the temple, it was personified for us in the mission of Christ. And of course, it's now to be, um, we're now to mobilize the church to this effort as well that God wants all men and women to hear the good news of his son Christ and to be saved. This is precisely why one of the best things a church can do to push back injustice is to work um, diligently at unity within the church uh, and to show love across all kinds of various cultural lines, to not let those things be what separates us or divides us or even marks us. But one of the best ways to fight injustice, and I think there are many, but one of the best, is to work hard at church unity and to let that for sure be at least one of the top places where every week we gather together, regardless of occupation, income level, skin color, um, uh, you, you name your demarcation according to society, regardless of any of that, we come together in in unity around one person, Jesus Christ, the God-man. And and we unify around that, and He is our head, and we are one in that body. As we exemplify and illustrate and display that more and more, I think it does more to push against and to speak against the injustices of our culture um, like few things do. And yes, we should take other actions— there are things we should be involved in. I don't doubt or or argue against any of that. But I, I think one of the loudest voices we can have is just week by week, unity in the body, regardless of all the various social constructs that are forced upon us. And when we gather together, let's do so in a way that's so visibly unifying, so evidently, singularly um, centered around Christ that, that our culture looks at us and wonders how in the world can that many people who are all so different get along so well around one simple thing and the answer we would say is because of Christ and his cross and so church as we gather week by week let us make that kind of unity our goal uh, and let us uh, live in that way so that there are no misperceptions or misportrayals of the kind of unity that God has brought about within His church through Christ and His cross.